Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. So uh, we're a group of PhD students and we're all sociologists and we've set up this podcast for anyone who is fed up with the conversations about society that are happening at the moment. Um, every week we're going to talk about things that have made us angry. So to start us off, Tiso, what has made you angry this week? Hi, my name's Tiso. I'm 39. <laughs> <laughs> Saying it out loud. Um, he doesn't look what it. What year were you born in Tiso? Couldn't be sure. <laughs> 1978. Whoa! Um, <laughs> smart, isn't it? Um, I don't know what's made me angry this week. I suppose the thing that I got most annoyed with is Trump. He's what? What in particular? I think what upsets me is I feel he's irresponsible. For someone who's the most powerful man in the world, I think he says things very irresponsibly. He behaves very irresponsibly. So, on a macro level, his announcements at the UN. What like, do you mean by macro? Level? So, uh, global. So, when he said at the UN, when he said, uh, I'm going to destroy North Korea, I just thought, well, did he not expect them to think that's a declaration of war? Like, you just embarrass these people on the, on the world stage. This is their peer group. What did you expect? So, if there's any chance of war, of, a, of the most pointless war in, the, in world history, over two people's egos, you've, you've started it. You've declared war on these people. Like, what do you expect is going to happen? You've pushed these people into a corner. Yeah. So I feel like with Trump, it's such, it's such a big, obviously, topic at the moment. But I was saying to you earlier, T, I'm struggling to compare him to anyone that we that we've studied or we've seen before in history like how how do we understand the way he's going to behave and what it's going to mean for society i don't i don't try to see him that way i don't i don't I don't look at his motives and his movements and try to compare him to like past leaders because it doesn't work like that he's truly doing what whatever he feels like doing he, he's behaving how he's always behaved in his life he's, he's at the top he's always been at the top but now he's in a an environment where you have to be consensual. He, he's, never, he's not used to consensual politics or having to compromise. He does what he wants. So, on a macro, on, sorry, on a local level, talking about America in itself, not <coughs> not the UK. His irresponsibilities when he talks about race now. He's used race as president-elect to get himself into power, talk to his core audience. So he knows what he's doing. <coughs> but he's stoking the frames of of racial hatred in a country that's so fragile, it's psyche so fragile about race, it's, to me, it's irresponsible because it's just leading, down people, leading, leading people down a path <coughs> where people want race conflict. There's people in America that, that want this. I mean, have they ever not wanted it? I guess that's the question, but yeah. I, I think people have come, America's come so, when I try to speak of America, they've come so far in a short period of time <coughs> in, when it comes to regard to race. So the Jim Crow laws ended in the 60s. Yeah. So you've had what? What, 50 years or so of them trying to move to a place now where you can have a black, black president. I didn't think that was even possible. Yeah. But you've come so far. I mean, even now, there's over, it feels like it's not possible again. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. did that really happen? Yeah. <laughs> That's not real. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I, for a country that was lynching people in the 60s, yeah. black, on the basis of colour, to come this far, and now all of a sudden you're, you want to unravel this, like it's a good idea. And this is what's kind of worrying. Like you're, you're, and because you're unraveling, because it's so, such a fresh wound, like people are willing to go back to, they want to go back to the 60s because they feel safe. So 
when he's talking to people in, in, in Alabama, I, I get why he's talking. Like, that's his audience. That's what plays well to them. They see segregationist era. Alabama is the place to be. Uppity black people who've got loads of money and not pledging allegiance to a flag. So it's, it's always going to go that well there. It's always going to play well. Yeah. But I'm saying, do you want to be that kind of person to unpick all this? This irresponsibility of someone who's 71, who's in a position of such power, you should know better. <laughs> you should know better. Hey, well, I think that is like, that's Trump in a sentence that he doesn't know better. He's just interested in like, what's good. But, don't it, but, that, but that's what I mean about not understanding where his behaviour sort of come from. Not that I'm trying to psychologically understand him, but what is the aim? What is the, what's, what, I don't understand I know, what he's like doing. Everybody's paying point? attention to anything that's happened in your lifetime at all, yeah. like anything at all. Like, how could you come from a position where you think, like, yeah, whatever, like, how bad could it possibly be? Like, it could be really bad yeah. for you as well as everyone else, but yeah. it's almost like he just, like, there are no consequences for him to mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. Like, he will just say anything and do anything <laughs> if he thinks it will get a reaction. There's like, it's almost like real life beyond Twitter is not that, like concrete to him. That's what I mean, like what, so what is the agenda? Okay. And I think that with a lot of the stuff that we are angry about in society at the moment, that is what I think we're finding quite difficult as sociologists is we don't understand what, why a lot of these people are speaking the way they do or acting the way they do because it doesn't follow behaviours that we're necessarily used to in an, over, in, in an open way mm -hmm. or, or something that we've previously understood, which is... But if he keeps talking about these kind of things, you don't have to have a strategy because you can see he's failing on actual real concrete things, things that are hard to achieve, stuff like the economy. No one likes talking about the economy because it's difficult, it's hard. And I don't think even politicians actually understand understanding what they're talking about, how to get results. So if you talk about things like identity or North Korea, it's great people talk about it and they get so upset and so emotional that they forget about their pocket. Like Trump and his pals, they're, they're loaded, it doesn't matter what they do. Oh my god, did you hear him today? Oh, I don't know if it was today. Mm. I was listening to the Today programme. He said something like, oh, you know, they're like cutting taxes for corporation tax mm. from 35% or something to 20% mm. and they want to get rid of inheritance tax. And he said something like, you know, we're doing this because we believe in like a low tax system. It's not good for me personally, believe me. And you're like, how is that not good for you personally? You're a businessman and you have an empire that you want to pass on to your children tax free. Of course it's good for you. You're literally creating laws that are good for you and no one else. Like, how does it benefit people on low incomes to have no taxes? It doesn't. But it's insane. So if you if you're talking about stuff that's so emotional that you can have a kind of visceral response to yeah stuff like what's happening about your pocket your financial status your economic status you're not talking about that you're not holding them to account by that so you're just, you're so concerned you're so wrapped up in the fact that someone called you a black this or you're a white that or your rights as a transgender person your rights as a woman all these things at the end of the day when it comes down to it when it comes down to your pocket your financial situation you're not talking about you're not holding them to account because you're concerned about well the way i think in the u.s the way Trump tackles that, and I think what we see a lot in the UK of how people tackle that is jobs. They go on and on about jobs. No detail, mm -hmm. jobs. Getting more people into work, jobs. That's how I think they tackle the economy. But then when yeah. you actually look at the detail exactly. of jobs... But no one holds you accountable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You about, you, you, all you're concerned about is like the kind of the stir that is created over like Charlottesville or stuff like that. Which, like I said, it's, it's obviously important to people, but... When it, when, you come to, when it comes down to it, when it comes to the slums or the poor areas, we're all living together. 
yeah. cheek by jowl. All the rich people live in gated communities. Yeah. Do you know? Mm. So this is, I don't know. But yeah, that's what's making me angry, Trump. <laughs> if, I, if I could see him, I wouldn't punch him. But. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm just hoping he has a heart attack like really soon. Oh, just God. Drops dead. <laughs> Catastrophically. Chantelle, what's made you angry this week? Um, my name's Chantelle. I am a PhD student here at Goldsmiths. Um, I am, well, I was born in Hackney. Um, I grew up in the West Midlands um, and I'm a returning Londoner. Um, I am an aspiring sociologist. Um, you are a sociologist. I am a sociologist. <laughs> um, I am interested in intersections of race and class. Um, what has annoyed me this week, Saskia, is Judge Ian Pringle, who has given a suspended sentence to Lavinia Woodward, who stabbed her boyfriend in the leg. Lavinia is a, stu a medical student at Oxford University, she's at Christchurch College. Um, he believes that her career will be severely damaged and there are lots of mitigating circumstances as to why she attacked her boyfriend. Um, he believes that she's very able and bright and doesn't deserve a jail sentence ultimately. So, so why would that make you angry, Chantal? That seems pretty reasonable to me. Uh <laughs> and something as a as a sociologist who has sort of dipped in and out of criminology um, is access to justice sentencing who goes to prison who doesn't go to prison privilege there's so many different intersections as to why this story pisses me off um, I think what I think a clear thing is to talk about privilege and what that means when you are confronted with issues. Well, well the issues that she has or that, that are her mitigating circumstances. She's got a background, a mental health background. Um, she has struggled with various disorders, personality disorders, eating disorders, um, and has been a pretty unstable person. So it, it's not necessarily that I want to target her, it is the system, it's the structure and As it's judges. because she's white and because she's privileged and because she goes to one of the best universities in the world. Yeah, but yeah. What upsets me is that I just read, just pulled it up just now on the internet, like the judge even admitted that this would normally, you would normally go to prison for this. Yeah. So why is she going to prison then? Yeah, this is what I'm saying. So the judge, <laughs> the judge, the judge admitted that this goes normally, this would be a custodial sentence, so yeah. you would go to prison. So, sometimes I think to myself in situations like this, so all my pals, when we, when we bomb around and <clears throat> we tend to be, they would self-identify as working class guys. So, I, I'd say to myself, if someone like Prince Harry was doing what we were doing and got caught, would he go to prison? No. No. So, <laughs> this, <clears throat> this, this whole thing pulls into kind of like one of the foundations of Western society, the rule of law, mm, mm. equality under the law. We mm. all should be treated the same. Mm. But then, <clears throat> as sociologists, we know there are always exceptions to the rule. Mm. So, this is what's problematic. This is why we get upset mm. because I feel that if I did that as a black working class male, if I stabbed someone in the leg, I'd be going to prison. Yeah. 
I mean, this is what, sorry, I was just thinking about um, uh, British, like the idea of British values. And one of the mm. things that kids have to be taught in school now is respect for rule of law. Mm. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, um, one, of, it's one of our fundamental British values, Chantal. How do you not know that? Wow. Um, and it's, it's just so interesting because you're like, but the law does not apply equally to everyone. Mm. Obviously, mm. like, it's, it feels from where we're standing as incredibly blatant and yet like again and again you get judgments on cases like this we are like it's literally because they're rich and white and you know but I think that's I think it's really blatant to us but I think one of the reasons why I feel this podcast is really important is because I don't feel like we think about this stuff enough as in public, society. as a society, as a yeah. society, like what is actually happening? Like we go, we talk about inequalities every day. Yeah, we live it. We talk about it. We write it. But it just gets sort of brushed over as just oh that girl, that that clever girl from Oxford. Yeah, she had an eating disorder, stabbed her boyfriend. She's been let off. Oh, she's still going to get to be a doctor. It's I just, would not want her to be my doctor. Yeah, I know. Would I didn't think that as well. Like the way the emphasis on the career. I'm like, hang on a minute. She's still going to get to be a doctor. But yeah. See, what's interesting is that the like the Telegraph um, says that because she's a a career won't be impact. Well, it will be impacted. Her punishment is she can't be a surgeon. That's oh, her punishment. Oh wow! Right. Because she's she to disclose her conviction, so it stops her becomes so just one avenue closed off to her. But. <laughs> Like I, said, I, don't, I don't know, in her social circle, that might be a form of punishment, a form of exclusion. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but um, I don't know, when you're, I suppose, the issue is your position in the structure, in the, kind of, in the whole society thing. Whereas we talk about it because it's our lived experience. So mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're aware of these things. But these people, when you're, to her, that might be a, what she expected. That was an expected mm-hmm. outcome. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I stabbed you in the leg, but I'm not going to present. Yeah. The, just, just on the same note, it's a very different case, but the similarities are um, gender and age. So a woman who was on a suspended sentence um, has just gone to jail for intimidating um, Jeremy Vine. Her name's Shanique, Pe- Shanique Pearson. She's 22. And... Video was uploaded by Jeremy Vine of him being shouted at by Shanique, who was annoyed about him being clo- riding his bike close to her car. Um, now he is regretful that she is going to prison. Did he? Where did he? Did, is that a statement he gave? About yeah, it? yeah. He yeah. says, "I regret that she's gone to prison." Well, you put it online. You used your platform. And also, something which has really troubled me about this case, fair enough, like there's a video of her shouting him going, fuck off mate, like get away from my car. Mm-hmm. He, the, her defense lawyer said, you are, you're, you are stereotyping this woman as angry um, because she is black. And he said, I don't think you have grounds to play the race card here. The race card? He said the race card in oh. court. Who gets to talk about race and who gets access to justice? Yeah. That is what is like a black woman can't claim to be discriminated against in a court. Yeah. Um, because that would be playing the race card. But a white guy can use all his like societal power and privilege to put her in prison. Yeah. And she's not allowed to defend herself against that. 
And I mean, just to give you more detail, to try and be as objective as possible on this, she was on a suspended sentence. So she, she had previously been convicted of theft and robbery. So she okay. had spent time in prison. However, what is the benefit of putting her back in prison? Come on. Like, we know about reoffending rates. We also know how annoying some cyclists can be when you're driving on the road. Okay, so, let's so <laughs> road rage is also an issue. Road rage is an issue. It's not. Have you passed your test yet? I have passed my test. No, cyclists aren't all annoying. Cars, are, cars, are probably the worst. No, but road rage is a thing. It's just, it's a yeah, real problem. A but it just. The justice thing is really, and I think it, what it goes back to is who is implementing or who decides justice, and it's the judges. So over ninety percent of just judges are white, male, over sixty. Yeah. So we were talking about this, and this reminded me. So I am a Radio Four junkie, and I was listening to uh, it was a PM program. If anyone's interested, <laughs> um, on the twenty first of July, and uh, Lady Brenda Hale was appointed the first female president the UK Supreme Court so they were doing a piece on this and they had I think like Baroness Helena Kennedy saying something like you know she's great this is great I'm really pleased there's finally a woman in like one of the top jobs in British society <laughs> fantastic um, and then they had this guy Lord David Hope who is another member of the UK Supreme Court and he gave this quote which I was basically sick in my mouth listening to and I went back and listened to it again on iPad and transcribed it because I was so outraged but um, you have to imagine this in like a kind of old man posh. Okay, I've got the posh voice. Yeah, can, you do, man... can you do the impression? <laughs> no, <laughs> I won't do the impression. Okay. Okay, he said, She's a very sparky lady. My first impression was of a very engaging, lively person who spoke her own mind. She's very generous in apologising if she thinks she's gone too far. She's attractive in that respect. She has flowers in her room, which is a remarkable thing, which the rest of the justices I don't think have. She combines a very sharp intellect with a very attractive femininity about her, which um, I think is part of the reason why she's been so successful. I mean, like, that is everything that's wrong with the justice system in, like, one quote. This old man is, like, leching on this incredibly intelligent woman who has got there, dis like, in spite of her gender, not because of. And the first thing he says about her, she's sparky, which is, like... And using the word off. femininity and flowers. Flowers. And he brings up the fact she has flowers. Oh, she's very ornamental. She puts ornaments in her room and it smells so lovely. No, but the first thing he says about her that's kind of specific, it says she's generous and apologising if she's gone too far. What, when she's offended you, she's apologised. How often have you apologised, yeah. David Hope, whoever the fuck you are, for <laughs> offending a woman? saying he is a sexual predator or anything like no. that. I would never say anything slanderous like that. I don't know what his views are on women, but I'm guessing they're not great yeah. based on this. And it's like you're making judgments on elements of society. You're sitting in a courtroom looking at people in front of you. Yeah, and deciding. Deciding really massive things about their lives. And that's the kind of thing you have to say about your colleagues. But yeah, I think... I think these people, they're disconnected. Yeah. This is the thing, they're disconnected. In their circles, those things are acceptable. And they see like things like when you're talking about that woman, how he's describing her. This is again kind of ties to some of my interests, like a reaction against feminism. They think feminism's made women 
ugly. So when they talk about femininity, she's smart, but she's kept her girly look. Like you'd still want to have sex <laughs> yeah, with her. Basically, yeah, basically, <laughs> they, they've, they've kept. She's kept her girly looks about her. feminine. They they see this this coming They're trend. Threatened by it, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's, this is the whole thing that comes through. It's a fear. So it's a fear. So they keep reinforcing things that scare them. So they yeah. don't want to let uh, a smart woman who they think she's. Ugly. So what? They don't want like a castrating woman. They don't want like a ball breaker. They want a woman who's smart and clever, but makes them makes feel like they're still like men and still in a real position of power. Uh, when I, when I, in my former life, I was a banker. So <laughs> um, one of the shocking things I saw was a, a, a new woman came in, and she was super smart. Like she, she, she made it. And she would be senior to them, and so the guys were. <clears throat> The first thing that they said was, she's ugly. This, <gasps> this is the key thing. So she- <clears throat> I don't know why I'm going, <gasps> I'm not surprised at all. Oh, yes. I'm, so I'm, I'm a junior, I listen to these senior guys. And so my first impression was like, why are you so upset by this? And I didn't, I didn't verbalize it because you can't verbalize it. Mm -hmm. But this is my thought process. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't understand why these guys are upset. Like truly upset because, and not talking about her ability to do the job or whatever it is, it's all about her appearance. It's all about appearance. And when they first, obviously, she's senior to them, so she's their boss. Mm -hmm. So, this is it was so interesting to see the dynamic because when she came in, they all licked her ass, all of them licked her ass. But <clears throat> the talk after she left was, oh, she's ugly, yeah, because it's like they're reassuring themselves, yes, yeah. like. Don't worry, she's not a threat to us because yeah. like, she's not attractive. But yeah. It, like I said, it's when you see that, when you see it in in reality, it's it's, it's mind blowing. It's truly mind blowing. And this woman, like I said, she worked. She'd been banking 30, 40 years, so she earned that place. Yeah. She earned that place. But um, it's like I said, these people in these systems, they're disconnected. So these judges, to them, that's a that might be a, a reasonable thing to you say, even to his female friends. You're, you're very feminine and it makes them happy. Yeah. But it's not, you're not acceptable, but... You're very, sp you're very sparky lady. <laughs> it's, it's so old. Sounds something my granddad yeah, would say. It's so old and very, very uh, like, old school, 19th century. No offense, granddad, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I try and think to myself. Like, I think like, one of our key tasks of us being sociologists is trying to put yourself in that situation. I moan about everything. Everything. I hate loads of things. I get upset <laughs> by things. But I to try and be reflexive now. So I try to imagine myself in that situation. How would I be? And like I said, I try and draw, I try and be as reasonable and as objective. There's no such thing as objectivity. I, you're coming from a position, but mm -hmm. I'm always trying to think, okay, why is he saying that? How, yeah. how would I be? Yeah. Yeah, and I think just to sort of finish on that note about the judges is that's what I think we have to do constantly as sociologists is and what sometimes I think a lot of us are not doing enough of in academia is reflecting on how much we understand or get the lived experiences we have to as further we get on in academia the more the further away you potentially get from the people that you were studying originally and it's really important to to, to keep those links to engage to understand our privilege to not forget and I guess that's why doing stuff like this is really important. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because by definition, I stopped being like my friends a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Just by the fact that I even went to university makes me different. Yeah. So my interests. So if I ever, if I ever speak to them about or broach a subject that's slightly past 
don't know, slightly past football or something like that. They like, they make a, my mate makes a transformer sound because like, that's all you hear because you're like a truck, you're like a robot. That's all I hear. And then, that, that, and that cuts me off because they don't want to speak about it. They're like, you're like a robot. And they just walk off. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so I've given up. I've, I've stopped trying to take the museums and stuff like that because. <laughs> Imagine when you guys were trips to science museum. And you'd be like, isn't it amazing? And then being like, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But okay, yeah, moving Saskia. on. What's annoying you? So I'm Saskia and uh, I'm a lifelong Londoner as well, um, like Tiso, but I've had slightly different experiences growing up. So I uh, went to a girls' private school, um, which in some ways, it's quite uncomfortable talking about publicly because of the whole privilege thing. But we were just talking about this, and I think it's important to talk about it because um, it's not something I think that we reflect on enough as a society. It's like, is it okay to get a small group of people together who all have a lot of money and all put their money in the same pot and educate their children in a special way that's better than everyone else? Like, is that a moral decision to make? And I would argue, absolutely not. See, I, so I am, suppose, obviously, South I don't know, it's working class. I went to state schools all my life. And if I had the opportunity to have kids, I would send my kids to private school. Not because, the reason why I say that is from my lived experience. So my half sister and my little cousin, they both went to private schools. And then, like I said, when I was in banking, I've seen people come from private schools yeah. into the system. And it's the soft skills that it gives you, the opportunities that it makes you aware of. Now, going to a state school, I'm just involved in the bullshit. I'm just involved in street life. That's what distracts you. Yeah. So education becomes not something that you should like or want to do. It becomes like something you just have to do. Um, but I think the distinction there, I guess, is that even if I'd gone to a state school, I don't know, it's like class and look like education is totally tied up in class. Mm. But if you had kids too, so you've gone to university, you've got a master's, and now you're doing a PhD, like, okay, your kids might get involved in street life, I don't know. But the fact is, they'd come from a household where like education is something that you really prize. So, yeah, it's but, like. But you see, this is the, this is the problem. You're innate, you've got an innate talent in you, so private no, school. No, 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 so, no. So, <laughs> school, it draws it out. It makes, See, makes I so disagree with the idea of innate talent because it, it's always middle class kids who have innate talent. Yeah. No, no, but it, it polishes it. So, when I, when I, so obviously, sorry, one of the things I did was when I was at work, I'd done a volunteer program that me and a couple of colleagues set up to go into working class schools, uh, what they call trouble schools. Mm-hmm. So, you go in there and there's kids there with talent. So, my, my whole thing was, why all banks going to Oxbridge educate? Because that pool of talent is diminishing. Yeah. And so everyone's going there. So you might as well go somewhere else and tap it for talent. And all these kids, they all have the same potential. They all are, some of them are so bright. Mm-hmm. However, they don't get the opportunities. Yeah, of course. So then they're not aware of it. But in private school, even if you are, you're not the brightest kid, your people- Oh yeah, they you have opportunities. The opportunity, and they take that time with you. Yeah. So I was in a class, my school class I think was 30 plus, 30, no, 30 kids. Biggest class, I think, was 37 kids. So 37 kids. With one teacher. One teacher. Listen, it was a madness. So. <laughs> Caveat this with Tiso went to school before the idea of limited classes came in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, there's, 30, there's about 32 
22 in all my classes. I know, but isn't that like the limit? You're, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. You're not allowed. So, it, it, I went to, well, my secondary education, it was an all boys school. So, it was just fighting. That's what we did in school. So, wrestling came out, so people would start wrestling in class. Insane. Back, like, suplexes and... Yeah. And this is... Even if you're the brightest kid, to, to concentrate in that environment is difficult. Yeah. It's your environment that you're around. So if everyone's behaving like animals, you have to behave like an animal because you're in that environment, you're weak. But there are, just to move it, obviously we are talking about young people here, we're talking about children, but just to move it a little, more about, a little bit more about structure and what Saskia was talking about with parents in a household, there are, it's not, it doesn't need to be as simple as I've got my now send my kid to state school or uh, send my kid to private school, sorry, or if I haven't, I'll go to um, state school. We, there has to be an emphasis on how important cultural capital is. So why <laughs> are so many... Cultural capital, cultural capital <laughs> is understanding the... Uh, well, understanding or having education, knowledge, knowledge of society, networks. So um, it's like the because, idea that being rich is not the only way in which people dominate society yeah. it's having those things as well yes so like people at my school they knew what the right school subjects were to take they knew like what social activities are good to get involved in to meet other middle class people they know what the right universities are yeah. and they know where yeah. to go for work experience when they're like 13 like people yeah. are doing work experience in, like the bbc because their parents work there like you know yeah that kind of thing is the kind of opportunities going to private school. So my argument is on that, just to follow on about these parents. These parents, we need these parents in state schools. Yeah. State schools are struggling because there isn't enough cultural capital surrounding them. <laughs> and also there isn't enough money. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't have to be as black and white as, oh, I've got money, oh, my kid's going to get... I want my kids to have this education. It has. To, we have to think about cultural capital, and we have to think about looking after state schools because we've lost that. Yeah. I came from a lone parent family and went to state school, but because my mum had a relative amount of cultural capital, I was all right. I valued education. I was taught. To, I was taught to value education. I was taught to think about what I wanted to be when I was older. Mm. I was always playing catch up, don't get me wrong. I never knew what universities to go to. I didn't know about postgraduate education. I didn't know about work. It's, I didn't know about any of this stuff. So you are always playing catch up as a state school kid, but there needs to be more accountability on these parents that just want to, as you said, group together yeah. to make more privilege. Like they could, people could do more and send their kids to state school and have an impact. Like, But I, I don't think, Right. People aren't up for that though, obviously, yeah. I, I don't think people see it that way. Yeah. No, and they don't. You see it as a personal choice. Like, it's a selfish thing. I want, as a parent, I'm not a parent, but <laughs> as a parent, you want your kids to have the best opportunities yeah. for them. And you Absolutely. want to, not to have the struggle that you went through. Yeah. So you, if, if, I, if a school says, if at school A says, I'm going to give that kid an opportunity, a better opportunity, a better start in life, you send your kid there. Yeah. Whatever it costs. Well, no, so this is interesting. So I read um, a study uh, by a woman called Diane Ray, who's a big name in the social oh, yeah. education. Yeah. She wrote a paper about um, white middle-class parents who send their children to schools that are like urban, comprehensive, that are you know, really multi-ethnic, and normally white middle-class parents avoid those schools like the plague because <laughs> they're not the good schools, you know, like they're in the bottom half kind of of like achievement in terms of like their local authority and you know they could get their kids into grammar school or private school or whatever 
um, or even like a, a good comprehensive. And um, what she found was that basically these people get their privilege in other ways. So by being white in a multi-ethnic environment, you get more attention from the teachers or you get more mm. kudos or like you have the cultural capital that other kids don't, don't get and yeah. it doesn't necessarily translate into the other kids in your class benefiting from that. No, that's true. That is true. And like, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, like, I'm sure there are things that those kids maybe don't get that they would get at grammar school, blah, blah, blah. But they're still much more likely to go to the highly selective universities that are, you know, the most aspirational or whatever and get the best jobs mm -hmm. because they still have those networks and like, they're middle class. I think it, it all it's all seeks to replicate itself. So cultural cultural capital. So for working class kids, you have it in a different way. So if you're I don't know if you're into urban life, or mm. that's your cultural capital. So but these things in the long term don't matter. Yeah. When it comes to getting a job, you're going to end up in a job that pays 30, 40 grand if you're lucky. But then when I speak to my peer group, that's good money to them. Yeah. They've made it. They're, to them, they've made it, and it, that gives them a basis to work on to, to send their kids so they can get the kids to, to be different. So, I look at my family. So, my mum's goal as a 20 year old uh, when she gave birth to me was to just make sure that I didn't have her life. Mm -hmm. So, even if I had to get to university, you've made it to get a better job to earn 30, 40 grand because mm -hmm. you've done more than what she was on. So, she's made it. So, the next one on <clears throat> is to push it further. So, I look at my little cousin, so she's, I suppose, she went to private school, so she avoids all the, the nonsense that's all around, that I grew up around. So, well, because she has more control, control of yeah. her life. So you're more control. If you don't, you, you are attracted to the nonsense, yeah. because that, that's what we can, that's what you can control. That's what, you have so much, so little economic, social control in your life, mm. then you latch onto things that are. Well, you see, but those things, these things, those, they become important. Yeah. So for me, growing up, so it comes down to like the way you dress, the things that signify you. It's, it's all, you don't realize how crafted it becomes. So even that's my ring, what you're wearing. These things mean they mean something to certain people in certain environments. Yeah. So when I go to the gym, it means something to see people. So <clears throat> it's about teaching that that isn't. But you see, it's about yeah, it's about trying to be more reflective and I'm trying to say to the kids like, listen, <clears throat> these things that you think are important. They're not, they're not the be and end all. But at this, at this point in your life, if I could go back in time and see myself, I'd say, listen, just, just calm down. Like, these, <laughs> these things are not important, but you get caught up on it because... <clears throat> and you think, so you think in private school I think, that you are... It, it widens, it gives it a bit wider. Oh, but that's but it's really difficult for <laughs> us to say that no, no, because we didn't go, no, 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 though. I'm, yeah. I'm just giving my experience on yeah. my, little, my little cousin and my sister because... They still have that. They, they, still, they still, the street life. still the street life, but oh, okay. But they've yeah. gone. There, they've seen the world a bit wider. Than yeah, okay. Yeah. So they have like both. They yeah. have more perspective. Whereas I would say that like a lot of people who go to yeah, private school don't have a wider perspective. No, no, because it, like I was not. I remember going to university and I was chatting to this friend of mine from Tottenham, and she was talking about postcode wars, and I was like, postcode what? <laughs> and you live in. I live in London. Yeah. yeah. I, I was like, postcode, what's just like postcode? Look, well, you don't know what it is. And I was yeah, like, no, I have no idea. I was like, 
19, been to a private school since I was four. Like, I just did not know. Our school would go on about how like multicultural it was and there were like two black girls in our year and like, you know what I mean? Like we just, yeah. I did not realize how big the world outside my life was. <laughs> in the same way as I would imagine most teenagers don't, it's just that my experience was one of like basically incredible privilege. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the like I said, if I have this opportunity to make kids see the world wider, yeah. the problem is that when you don't do that, you replicate the same thing. So all my pals are just replicating the same things that their parents have told them. And but I would say that about my friends yeah, as yeah. well, just from a to the opposite end of the spectrum, yeah. So I'm trying to get them, I suppose, the word, the jargon people are using at the moment is social mixing, right? So kind of experience of a, of the other side and see the world wider than your own position. Yeah. So, but, the, but T, I feel like I have spent my life being on the outside of some of these circles that you're describing or some of these views or groups of people mm. that you're describing. Mm. And when you do get into those, those worlds, you do get into those different establishments or different power structures, mm. you are often rejected or seen as the other. You're the, you're the woman, you're the working class person, you're the black girl. You are, it's very difficult to... Be the be, lone, to, to yeah. be the lone wolf or to be actually accepted. Listen, I, listen, I, I, I agree yeah. 100%. Listen, yeah. when, I, when I was in banking, so I spent 12 years in banking, working my way up. So 12 years? 12 years, yeah. So when I, through my 12 years, whenever I've been in the department, I've always been one of two black people. Always, all the time. And in the middle of London, where London, the demographic, I can't remember what the percentage, but I think 36% is ethnic minorities. When you go to like the financial, finance institutions in the city, it's all white. The only black people there that work there in on mass are either cleaners or security guards. Standard, yeah. Just how it is. I know that. I understand that. But being being a lone person, being the outsider, that's always. But I think that puts me in a position of power because it gives me a position that I can educate people, not, yeah. in, not in a pompous way, but it's showing them that this is me. But it's but one of the. I feel like I've had quite a lot of these experiences recently where you do have that power to represent yeah. a different group but that is fucking tiring it's it like, is tiring do you know what it is I don't, I don't explaining inequality on a daily basis I don't, and people also don't want to hear how privileged they are people hate it <laughs> yeah. hate it they do not want to know that people do not want to think about the fact that actually like because then everyone always goes like oh my god but like i was bullied at school or like you know this horrible thing happened to me and like yes everyone has horrible experiences in their life like being privileged in any particular way does not protect you from shit stuff happening yeah very good yeah but like if you think about what if that shit thing happened and you had no money and you had no social position and like there's no one you could have asked for to lend you you know just like things like that yeah. like access yeah. to resources <laughs> like doesn't make that shit thing go away but it might make it easier, easier yeah. to deal with oh bang on i'll make you right yeah no i I don't know. Got, no, I do agree with you, and I think it's really important that that we do constantly try and end these circles and educate. It, it's something which I really want to do all the time, but I think sometimes it can be tiring. I, <laughs> see, all my life, when I so all my working life, so when I worked in the city, initially I started trying to be a kind of like a kind of zealot, trying to tell people about themselves, but that puts people off. 
Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is just to be yourself, and by people seeing you, yeah. you learn something. Mm -hmm. By interacting with you on a daily basis, then you learn something. Yeah. Because you think, oh, maybe not everyone's like that. And if you could... My biggest example is when I first met this guy, and his first thing he said to me was, he votes BNP, doesn't like black people, and he hates Muslims. He absolutely hates Muslims. Sorry, was he a banker? Yeah. I mean... That's what I imagine all bankers are like, but no one's ever actually said it out loud to me before. <laughs> that, that, that was his words. And so um, my response to that was, uh, that's fine, it doesn't bother me. But I said, well, we have more in common than we do apart. So it turns out we like the same kind of music, we like the same kind of clothes, and we became best friends. I mean, I understood why, why he held that position, where he came from, his, his background, his experience, mm -hmm. his lived experience. He had, he'd never met any black people, really. His, his lived experience was his brother was a football hooligan and he was in combat 18. So he looked up to his older brother and these theories were passed down to him and he exorbitant. I remember going to his house, he had the biggest union jack I've ever seen from his house <laughs> on the wall. Oh Instead of a TV, he had a union jack. Insane. He but, didn't have um, a TV? No, he had a union jack on the wall. Okay, so moving so, on. Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting, yeah. Okay. What, what is annoying you, Tasuke, this What's week? What's annoying me? You've got on a private school rant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, again, I was listening to the radio this Monday morning, and I heard a story about a psychotherapist in Bath Spa University who said that, so someone had written an article saying that he hadn't been allowed to do research on trans people who regretted transitioning because it was not PC enough for the university. The university had cracked down on this terrible language or whatever that he was using. And then they had the guy on the radio being like, well, yes, you know, this university is ridiculous. You know, how can anyone conduct any kind of research in this sort of environment, blah, blah, blah. And then the radio like presenter, I can't remember who it was, was just like, yeah, that, that is terrible. Uh, how, you know, PC brigades, like, they didn't really challenge it. They didn't really say, like, yeah, bloody PC brigade, but they kind of just let what he'd said go without really saying, like, nah, maybe there's more to this story than what the Times has written in a column. Um, so I kind of looked a bit deeper into it, thinking, like, mm, that doesn't really sound right. So my first thought was that if they have said on ethical grounds, you can't do... Basically, they said something like, you know, on ethical grounds, you can't do this research because it would be damaging to the university's reputation. My th first thought was that, like, well, doesn't that just say something about the fact that universities have brands these days that they have to protect? Because, you know, like, education has become a commodity that is bought and sold, and Bath Spa will find it harder to sell its degrees to students, especially international students who pay higher fees, if there's stuff like, you know, something goes wrong with this research, mm -hmm. which, you know, maybe is a bad thing in, in itself. But then I just looked a little bit deeper into the story and um, I was reading what this uh, trans activist Ruth Pierce has said on Twitter. And it, uh, unbelievably, it's not the whole story. The university didn't just go like, oh my God, like that's not PC enough. Firstly, you know, he's an MA student. I thought he might be like a professor, but he's not. He's just an MA student. And what happened was he went to this group of students, not students, sorry, to trans people who had transitioned and then regretted it, or de-transitioned, and they said that he didn't want to talk to him. So that rings alarm bells. Why didn't they want to talk to him? Also, like, you know, he's not trans. 
I don't know, I'm not saying many trans people can research trans issues, but you kind of have to wonder what his rationale is behind this, mm -hmm. and maybe the university, so he went back and was like, okay, I want to do another study, and they said no, and you kind of got to wonder, yeah, like, why didn't anyone want to speak to you? Uh, like, and he's clearly not an experienced researcher, maybe the university was concerned yeah. that he would do damage to his participants, or that researchers would do damage to him, because they said, they mentioned that in the ethical statement, and then also, Rufus uh, links to this article um, by someone called Tagonist, um, which is called uh, Fuck You and Your Fucking Thesis, Why I Will Not Participate in Trans Studies. It's by a trans person who's like, please stop doing research on me. Like, I'm not going to volunteer to take part in your study. I was like, yeah, like, the trouble is, is... Uh, like sort of trans issues have become a thing in the media. Yeah. So you can just imagine those students are going out and going like, oh, this is an interesting minority. It's almost like you know, kind of the anthropologist of like the early twentieth century going out to some undiscovered tribe and being like, yeah. oh, I'm gonna like live amongst them and learn their ways. And like trans people are like, fuck off. Yeah. Like actually fuck off. And you know. Yeah. Just because you want to do research on it, does not give you a God-given right yeah. to do that research just because... You're you, interested. You're, you're interested. Yeah. Read a book. I think, I think the two things that disturb me the most about the story... First of all, the research topic itself. Why are people so obsessed with doing research about a real minority of people that can be really damaging for a whole community yeah, sorry, of people? The, that's like, the other thing also that people are saying. It's like, you know there's a history of these kinds of studies being used to say, oh, well, these people regret transitioning, so we're not going to fund, like, yeah. that, like it's healthcare socially for trans people. It's socially irresponsible. It's yeah. very irresponsible. The second thing is, this word PC. Oh. Oh, my God, T, talk, talk about... Well, this word, this acronym. <laughs> PC, political correctness. I don't know. I, see, <laughs> so... Initially, when you, when you said all that, Saskia, what came up to me, the first thing, I don't know, are you annoyed about how the media treat truth, because... So yeah, I'm annoyed about the fact that the media have picked up on this story on the basis that it fulfills some kind of agenda that's going on at the moment, that anyone who complains about unfair treatment because of their group identity is labelled as basically being a whiny little bitch. Like, mm -hmm. any woman who's like, sexism is a thing, any man, a black guy, who's like, you're being racist, that woman in court, I'm yeah. sorry, I can't remember her name. Um, Shanique Pearson. So she yeah. was accused of playing the race card. Yeah. Like... Right. right. See, look, this is interesting, right? So, this taps into the kind of vein of, kind of the, the protest over multiculturalism. Multiculturalism now is seen as I think that's damaging people. The people that are saying that. What's multiculturalism, T? <laughs> this is a good point. I, I, actually, I actually don't know how people define it now. So, yeah. Multiculturalism, I suppose, a textbook definition is allowing groups of people to live, identify with their own group, to yeah. live their life according to their own cultural norms. Yeah. Um, but well, I think, and also, you know, it's the idea of kind of tolerating other groups. Yeah. Yes. Other yes. Faiths, other colours, other cultural yeah. traditions, whatever it is. I think my problem with the idea of multiculturalism is people always say, like, London's so multicultural. And I think what that implies is that we're all living alongside each other, having a jolly nice time, and being so tolerant and lovely that, like, you know, structural inequalities have gone because we all live yeah, cheek by jowl yeah, and we all yeah. have the same experience. Like, that's not true. Yeah. But 
on the other side, it gets taken up by the right-wing media <laughs> and others as being a symbol of like, you know, you think we're all being so tolerant, but actually this is causing like terrible divisions in our society and we should all just go back to our separate countries, whatever <laughs> they might be or however you might define <clears throat> that, and live separately because cultural traditions mixing is dangerous. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. That, bang on, I couldn't say anything better, but... <laughs> There's a, there's a sociologist called, um, I can't pronounce his first, his certainly his first name, it's Bauman. It's a Bauman. Zygmunt. Yeah, that's Zygmunt right, Bauman, yeah. R.I.P. So, so he speaks a lot about toleration and ambivalence, yeah. right? So this multiculturalism has kind of created a kind of toleration, but it's indifference. No one really cares about yeah. one another or their fellow human being, unless they become a problem to them. Right, so this is what kind of multiculturalism has kind of created. We tolerate each other, but we're indifferent to one another. So no one really, uh. so no one really cares about each other. So you might be gay, but don't bring your gayness next to me. My house next, and you stay away from. Yeah, me. so I can tolerate you being gay. Yeah. but don't don't, don't rub it in my face. Yeah. Don't rub it in my face. Don't bring don't bring your black issues. You're talking about slavery over it because it's, it weren't me. It weren't me. <laughs> This is this is a consistent thing of of of, of what it and it's been taken up by people to see that it's for people that take it up, it's a civilization on decline. So people use this analogy of Rome. So multiculturalism is causing a decay from within. So just like the Romans, the Romans in the in the late in the late fifth century in the West, they didn't know their empire was in decline, but it was declining. And this is how people talk about. Britain. When you say people, who specifically? Um, <laughs> so when I'm talking about people, I'm talking about supposedly the right-wing media, how it's portrayed, how it's come yeah. across. So yeah. when you're talking about trans issues, yeah. this is part of civilizational decay. Like there's like civilization was built on the idea that you have men <laughs> and you have women and they're separate. And like it doesn't matter how historically inaccurate this is or culturally or like whatever. But, you know, this is somehow that there was a mythological time when men were men and women were women. And to challenge that in any way, or to suggest that, you know, actually maybe those boundaries are not quite as distinct as people like to believe, is encouraging the decay of society. Like, we are all, like, it's a moral panic around, you know, can girls be girls and boys be boys? Mm. Whatever that means. So, coming from the... Where I spend most of my time in the far right, which is a great kind of. He doesn't. He's not literally in the far right. <laughs> no, no. He's not a member of the far right party. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I spend my time. Or my my own research is on, basically mainly based on the far right. So I read a lot of their literature. So I think it's a good test ground for the, some of the ideas that we're talking about. So this idea of civilization decline it comes up a lot, and they see things like trans issues as part of this process. So for them, they would look out in the world, they see their lived experience and see a world where women are not producing enough kids. So for them, statistically, Europeans are not having enough kids compared to other groups of people around the world. So it's a, an age population which is having less kids compared to say an Islamic country, Britain first, uh, mm -hmm. or whoever it is. So, they see, this is part of the problem is things like trans issues or feminism as causing women to lose their identity and not have kids, what they're meant to be doing. Not being at home, not being political, they, they should be at home having kids. So there, there's a great article, I won't say great, but uh, an interesting article on uh, the Daily Stormer about women and how they should be 
inside. And if you're not inside having kids, you're basically a uh, lesbian. Lesbian in your what using lesbian in a way that is derogatory? Yeah. Oh come on, Chantal! As if all right, are like yeah, lesbians, you go do your thing. Everybody hates lesbians. I was trying to be specific. To that. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, I think that annoyed me about this particular story is this is not some illegal website which that's, T-Sale that has been surfing. That's what I mean. I, I the extreme. I'm like fair enough. You don't like me because of my skin colour. Yeah. But it's where it's the taken for granted. Yeah, this is, it's the casualness, the BBC. This is like establishment. Right. Yeah. Like we are the impartial voice of the news. Let's this guy go on about how the world has become too PC about trans rights and just goes, yeah, well, that seems fair enough. Let's move on. And you're left kind of thinking, you, like, is that really journalism? Like, you're happy to, like, take every politician to task about every single stutter they make, but this guy, James Caspian, I think his name is, yeah, he can come out and say whatever he want, and you'll be like, yeah. That's PC. Yeah. It's PC. It's like PC gone yeah. bad. Um, okay, now the weather. Yeah. What? <laughs> I think when... At least we know mm. that the people that are right, in, that are on the alt-right or the far-right, yeah, yeah. They're making their position clear. Yeah, they're it's... kind of easily identifiable. <laughs> this is this is one of the things that, I, that kind of that, that's coming through my research is the kind of mainstreaming of extreme views to normalise them. Yeah, and this is what's quite worrying. This is a growing trend. So people refer to <clears throat> each other each other in kind of ways that you, I think it sounds more at home in the eighties than it does in twenty first century London. So when people talk about migrants, talking about being rapists or hordes of people, I haven't heard that language in 30 years. Or when people are talking about <clears throat> women in such derogatory ways, I haven't heard that since like, that's 70s talk that you would see on 70s TV. Like um, in the 80s, uh, there was a program called Bless This House. So they would talk about black people, they called them coons, wogs, migrants, and speak to them in such ways that you think that's insane. Yeah. In, in 21st century, when you watch it, it looks dated. But this is the kind of language that's coming back. Mm. And so when, when I think the issue is, should some, is, do the BBC care or do, do, they, have a, do they have a right? To, um, is there, sorry, what's the word I'm trying? A duty of care mm. to kind of look deeper. And I think they do. And one of the things that's kind of in decline is critical awareness. Mm. So this guy wasn't critical. He didn't challenge yeah. those statements. People just accept them as given. And this is what's the most worrying thing. When you start mainstreaming extreme thoughts and people don't question them, yeah. crazy shit happens. Brexit. Okay. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Saskia, Chantel and Tiso. We'll be back every week with a new podcast, so please don't forget to subscribe.